Ooh. And I'm recording. Look at that. And it's uploading progressively. No driving gloves again. John and Derek. Uh, Will's having a Monday here on Wednesday, and I kind of had the same thing, but I kind of have to be here to record. Will got held up. He might join us later in the episode. Don't know. But right now you've got me and Derek. Uh, Coming at you live, right. whatever, whatever, whatever radio jargon and stuff we want to do. I just can't pseudo get, live. Yeah, I just can't record recorded in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> Insert applause noise here. Mm, yes. You been doing anything exciting, Derek, or has it been? I don't know. I've just I've been busy, busy as uh, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean, just general work. I guess one of the last episodes, I don't remember if it was the one right before this or the one before that. We talked a little bit and I I mentioned we were starting a cool project at work that I couldn't really quite talk about yet because we hadn't fully announced it. But, you know, we've at least recently uh, made at least one or two social media posts out of the museum. Uh, So I can actually talk about that now. But uh, the museum near the, I guess it was end of last year, we acquired a a pretty interesting third generation Corvette. It's actually a 1979 Corvette, but it was, it was pulled off the the line when it was was finished at, at St. Louis assembly and sent back to Detroit. And it was a development car for engineering. It got a bunch of modifications done to the chassis to kind of test the 1980, 81, 82 engineering changes that were being made. Uh, actually wound up with, we're, we're not 100% sure, but a very early, possibly one of the first test 1980 bodies placed on it. We're still doing a lot of research on the car. It was also uh, then sent down to Bowling Green when they were setting up the assembly line, uh, the factory here, and and it was used as one of the test cars to run through the line uh, before they actually started production to make sure everything was running right. It actually wound up being the cover car of Corvette News in June of 1981, actually coming down the assembly line. The car's in actually mostly original surfaces, original paint, original chassis finishes, uh, all that. So we're actually, rather than doing any type of restoration work, we've talked a lot about the difference between conservation, restoration uh, on the show. Um, Yeah, this is really a full conservation treatment. We're going to preserve the car as is, put it, it's disassembled, and we're going to put it back together and basically get it back to what it looked like on that cover of Corvette News, you know, coming off the assembly line. So it's it's a pretty cool project. It's it's going to be a good one for the museum, saving a, a great piece of Corvette history. And, you know, it's it's going to be a great piece to tell the story of, of engineering Corvette. It sounds kind of exciting there. Can't wait to get a few updates and see what's happening. You kind of talked about this, that period. And ironically, I was visiting with a client today and he's got a dealing with a Corvette collection of his own. And uh, he's like giving me some of the extra stuff and had a bunch of magazines. And unfortunately, magazines just aren't 
worth anything today. Uh, but he goes, you got to have this one. And he gave me, and it was vet views from probably 1980, 81. I'm, no, it was, they were highlighting Bloomington gold, 1980 in it. So it had to be either in the later in the year or early in 81. I guess that's as close as I can come to relating to that 1980s, uh, Corvette story, except I think there's a really cheap one on, uh, Facebook marketplace right now, 80 Corvette. And I kind of like that glass window type, um, C3 type car. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm just, like I said, running around, doing my things, consulting with various people. I really hate the secrecy that my clients demand, but that's part of it. And part of what I do with visions and vehicles and talking to people and dealing with, oh, I want to buy this car, I want to buy this car, they somehow... Somewhere there's this myth that museum cars are these absolute perfect specimens and a car coming out of a museum is very well cared for, very nice. Uh, This thing that if you're going to buy any car at auction, you want something out of a museum. My advice, I always say, run. I discount the value a certain percentage in most cases. It really depends on the museum that owns, we'll call it, the artifact, the car, the truck, the mechanical device. Over the years, a lot of them were owned by collectors, and museums are expensive to operate. And money has to go somewhere, and sometimes the money's not to operate the vehicles. And I think, as most of our listeners know, cars are living, breathing objects. And the best thing you can do for a car is to run it, drive it, operate it. The best thing you can do for a painting is to hang it in a climate-controlled room, not touch it, not let it see UV light. You know, every every piece of art has its way it needs to be treated, and cars need to be driven. Everything in a museum needs to be driven and, and operated, or it needs to be disclosed that it kind of isn't. I mean, there's pickling procedures to preserve stuff, but... It doesn't matter. Things on static display, it's the worst thing you can do for them. Fortunately, over the last few years, we've, or maybe even decade, there's been a movement to being more used items in museums. I think, I don't know, I'd almost push that Simeon may have been a little bit on the forefront of making sure their stuff's used. I think Bill Harrod did it with uh, his his private collection that was on public display, and what remains of it is on public display now. I don't know how much they use their cars. You really have to check the museum and find out what their usage of it or what their use policy is, and technically it should probably be recorded, and it would be nice to have those records when the cars appear for sale. Derek, do you have any feelings on how... I don't know. I just all of a sudden went onto that thing. Do you have any feelings, etc. On I know the Corvette Museum uses a few of their artifacts, keeps things in use, as many museums, and we'll probably touch on some. But how long do I have? Oh, you can go. I've got a couple things to do here. Coming from the approach of museum curator, automotive museum curator with background in conservation of mechanical objects, let's call it, vehicles, 
uh, engines, clocks, uh, all those kind of things. Uh, anything that is mechanical and operates. I, I can agree with you on, on some of those things. I can disagree with you on some of those things. It is true that most automotive museums, most museums in this the, the country right now, most of the people I talk to in those museums lean towards operating some of the collection in some way. You know, the Corvette Museum, we're a living museum. I, I, I don't know that I like that term, living museum. I, there's no, I mean, dead museums are shuttered and the collections have been sold off so i mean any museum that's still open is a living museum yet we keep our uh, majority of our collection operable and you know we actually do things with it occasionally with those cars occasionally whether we take them over to the motorsports park and you know do a video about them to put out on social media online uh, or just for our archives or or something that we're doing we also take cars out to car shows you know some of the concord elegances uh, actually in about a week and a half uh, i'll be up at uh, the Cincinnati Concours at Alt Park with our 1953 uh, Corvette, that the, the car that basically started the museum. You know, we'll we'll drive that on and off the show field. I'm a strong believer in when an artifact goes out to a setting like that. Number one, it's safer for the vehicle to run and drive. Uh, it's it's extremely dangerous to try to trust someone at the Concours who's towing the cars with a golf cart to know you know, what they're doing with braking and, you know, accelerating and things like that. So I've never been a fan of, of towing a car onto a field. You know, anytime we operate a car, uh, it's also done, you know, with a term we like to use, which is responsible utilization. In other words, you know, we do due diligence in checking that car out before we take it out for a run, making sure nothing's going to go wrong, you know, nothing's going to get damaged, anything like that. But when we do bring the cars back when we know they're not going to need to operate for a lengthy period of time, we will do a shutdown process on them or, you know, what John referred to as a pickling process, which is actually draining fluids out of it. When we bring the cars in, you know, and again, it depends on which, you know, which vehicle it is. Each one kind of gets its own thought process, but engine oil drained, gas drained, I mean, if I was to walk you through the process, we would run the car out of gas. As it was running out of gas, we fog the engine with fogging oil. So the cylinders get lubricated with fogging oil. Of course, your, you know, the back of your intake valves, your exhaust valves all get fogged with oil. You know, once we have that done, you know, we make sure everything is purged of gas. The lines, the tank, everything's dried out. Then we would drain the engine oil, the water, the coolant out of the car uh, so that there's nothing chemically reacting there. We dry out the cooling system. Uh, you know, we're not going to leave water in there to corrode things. We leave like things like the brakes. We leave the fluid in there. It's a hydraulic system. We leave that in so the seals stay moisturized and, and coated in the hydraulic fluid. And we also have brakes for when we're moving the car around. Typically, if it's a automatic transmission, uh, you leave it in. Uh, manual transmissions, most of the time we will uh, drain that out because, of course, in neutral, the gears aren't really engaging each other, doing anything. Differentials will leave with synthetic gear oil in them. 
that way they're coated when they're being pushed around and the gears are rolling. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a pickling process we go through to minimize chemical reactions that can occur over time internally and damage the engine. You know, we kind of do a blended method of shutdowns and, and operating the vehicles. And I can say that, you know, the other museums I've worked at, Henry Ford Museum and the Crawford, those were the policies that, number one, Henry Ford had already been put in place before I was there. And at the Crawford, it was the policies put in place while I was there just to maintain the collection in the best possible uh, conditions that we could possibly care for the collection in. And that's, you know, that is the goal of any collection staff member, be it a curator or a conservator or a collections manager, is to maintain the collection in the best possible environment and methods that can be used and that's that's kind of the the beginning of my rant john i was say so you don't believe in the the technique of utilizing the vehicle pulling it in putting it again john are you there am i there oh how about I unmute my microphone there like a moron? That would be fantastic. Yeah, I don't know. All these technical difficulties. Push the button, you moron. But I was going to say, so you're not a fan of the museums out there that say, utilize the artifact really quickly, put it back, you know, bring it in, and then just put it back on display. They don't bother to drain in the fluids, fuel, any of that stuff. And then maybe a year later, decide to use it again and just push it down, make sure it's full of gas, fire it up, and go out there and run it. That 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 isn't that the way it's done. It's I mean, no, uh, the, no. the dollars are dollars, and we can't waste all this time with these procedures you're talking about. You know, we've got to do sixteen other things. No, if if you're going to do it responsibly, you're going to do it responsibly. I've seen I've seen a number of cars, and and the the worst thing with that, it, you know, I have people tell me that all the time. Well, no, you just bring it in, put it on the floor, and and you know you'll you'll take it out again in six months or a year, and 15 years later that car still hasn't moved off the floor. What do you think has happened internally in that car with water and coolant and old oil sitting in it? Uh, it, it, and, and fuel that's now gelled up, um, you know, you're, you're putting, you're going to put more money and time and effort into bringing life back to that car after letting it sit that long than you are going to put in it, doing it the proper way. And I think that's the whole conversation here is there's some museums that do it your way. There's some museums that did the example that I, I just explained and you've explained why that should be a big no-no, that's where you've really got to look at potentially the museum that if you're trying to buy or acquire a car. That's how I'm kind of looking at this. But just the overall care. Uh, you need to instill in the museums and talk, to, you know, I, it's one of the questions I ask, you know, granted when I worked with museums and even worked restoration, and, you know, how are these cars stored? How are these cars kept? And, you know, I, every... The bigger the museum, granted, not all the cars can necessarily run, but I think, as Derek said, the, the responsible curators really care for the artifact and know how to and take the time, and they just don't kind of treat them like everyday Ford and Chevys. And, oh, we put them in the garage and we get them out, and 
it even drives me crazy when collectors do that. You know, I only drive my car every Sunday to the Corvette luncheon. Sorry, I don't mean to single out uh-huh, Corvettes, sure. but yeah. I only drive my car Did every... Did you say, like, Porsche or BMW? Like, well, I... well, they... Um, I only drive my Porsche every uh, Saturday morning to breakfast. There you go. And, and you know, and, and I I can leave 15 minutes later because I can get there 15 minutes faster because as soon as I start that thing up and I hit the bottom of the driveway, I, I shift it, I like shifting at red line, and I guess it's a car, you know, kind of treat the car a little bit right. They're, again, they're living, breathing. You got to get the fluids up. Think about the way when you get up in the morning. You're most people aren't themselves until they have their coffee. I don't drink coffee. I, unfortunately, I'm a morning person. Uh, drives Zara crazy. She's somebody that she probably gets up in about an hour, hour and a half later, is beginning to welcome the day. Me, I can pop up and uh, most most days be moving in five or six minutes and you know not ready and dressed but telling conversations and being my um smart alex self your cars are the same way you've got to be gentle with them and and such and and i think the story Derek's telling and the way the corvette museum and the henry ford and you know, his time at the Crawford, those are three places he's had full experience with their operation. And I know there's other museums out there. You know, I'm very aware of the Simeone and the Lane and the Revs Institute or the Collier Collection down in Florida, how well they take care of their cars and they operate them. Uh, the Peterson does, ha- I think, have a few operational cars that they can take out. But everything else is properly stored. If you're ever going to buy a museum car, you got to find out what the history is on how the museum used it. The more and more museums are moving to that model of making sure the cars are run. And and to be honest, how often do you get to see, you know, a front-wheel drive Corvette being operated? Do you get to see the 1909 Thomas Flyer operated, which was a uh, still is part, I believe, of the uh, former. I'm drawing a blank on his name. It's part of the Imperial Palace collection. Yeah, the Hera collection. No, no. Is see, it you said in, you said Imperial Palace earlier. It's not Imperial Palace. It's the National Automotive Museum in Reno. But isn't that in housed in the Imperial Palace? No, it has its own building. Oh, yeah. Well, see, I guess. I can't say it, Derek. I'm on tape. I, I made a mistake. <laughs> I might, there's history. It's the first time I've ever been recorded making a mistake. Never, Actually, it's the first time I've ever made a mistake, let alone being recorded. So, there, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've got this new thinking, and unfortunately, you have people like me out there going, well, it was a museum car. I'm going to discount the value, or I'm going to... Oh, it's a museum car. It's the worst thing. Uh, cars are better in my private collection so that, as Derek and I said in the pre-show, or Derek actually said in the pre-show, so I can hoard them and I can use them and I can look at them whenever I want and you only get to see them when I feel like you're privileged enough for me to take them out of the house. Exactly. I was looking for a Derek uh, response there. and <laughs> You know, well, I'm, I'm busy because, you know, we're getting into the depth of this where I'm going to get really worked up, so I'd roll up my sleeves. Oh, okay. So I was, I was busy rolling up the sleeves, you know. Well, shall I step back and let you uh, 
Hang on, let me let me take my driving gloves off. You got a little bit of that black that they leave on your. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of the leather residue. Yeah. Uh, yes, as John said, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show, and that's that's kind of what twisted this episode into what it is. The reason for that is is we were just bantering about ideas for for what we could talk about. You know, a little bit of this museum private collection thing came up and. John and I both watch, you know, the the collector car or news world, things like that. Of course, uh, a lot of the different, you know, Hemmings is out there putting stuff out. Haggerty's out there putting stuff out. All the others that are out there, I, I sports car marketplace. I don't remember who it all together is out there. But one of the things that caught my eyes recently was a Haggerty video. And I don't remember exactly when they released it, but it it pops up every now and then. And gets my blood boiling and, and gets me worked up because if I remember right to call them their um, why I drive videos and and it is a one of the why I drive videos that is on uh, one of the old uh, national race cars uh, of course national uh, built a very high-end automobile uh, built some very significant uh, race cars in the early 1900s. I mean, one the Indy 500 uh, and a number of other races all across the country. And a gentleman that was, you know, owns one of those national race cars and, you know, hangs out with a couple other early race car owners, antique race car owners, did one of these Haggerty Why I Drive videos. And, and the, the tagline on this is, a race car that sits in a museum is a travesty. You know, there's a couple times in this video that they talk about, you know, this the, the owner just kind of tears apart uh, a car that sits in a race car that sits in a museum is, you know, it's 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 not living, it's not breathing, it's not, you know, it's oh, it's just it's just not good for it, and it's it's a travesty and and all these things, and it's just it's not true in so many ways because. As we've already covered, most museums that have these vehicles, significant, historic, especially racing vehicles, oftentimes will operate them responsibly. As I said, responsible utilization. You know, they go through them, they make sure they can operate them properly. And yes, are there cases where early race cars don't operate? Yes, and and the reason for that is because there is some issue with them that could cause catastrophic failure if the car is operated again. And if that catastrophic failure occurs, it reduces the historic significance of the vehicles, the appearance of that vehicle and the historic significance of it. Because if you're going to study an artifact, study an early race car, and let's say you know it was running and the rod broke and it threw out the side of the block and it cracked the block in half and busted the engine into multiple pieces well now you're looking at a car that no longer appears as it did when it won that race or when it made that significant event that occurred to make it such an important car in history now everybody's going to say well you can repair it you can repair it well, yes, you can repair it, but it is now never going to be the same as it was. If you repair it, now there's a repair. It is still not as it was when it won that significant race or when it did whatever it was that was significant to make it 
a car worthy of being in a museum. And that's one of the approaches we have to take. But the other problem I have with it is what John just talked about is, you know, the people that own these, you know, historic vehicles, and I don't, I don't care if it's the historic national race car or it's one of the only Duesenberg Model Xs, you know, one of the four that still that exist, or if it's, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a more modern car that I want to throw out there, and I'm, I'm have struggling, but, uh, you know, if it's yeah, well, throw out say, like a, a NASCAR car or just, you know, it's a couple year old yeah, Jeff or, Gordon car. I mean, it doesn't yeah, matter. I mean, yeah, some some significant car. And, and I mean, it could be, I mean, whatever. But the problem, the other problem is a car that sits in a museum is not a travesty in, in any way. A car that sits in a private collection tends to be a travesty because in the museum, museums are a public trust. In other words, those artifacts are held in the trust of the public, and the public can come in and see those artifacts and learn from them. In a private collection, in a guy's pole barn or in his garage, locked down, well, guess what? You have to know that person. He has to feel like you're, as John said, privileged enough to come see that car, and very rarely do they take it out to an event where the general public tends to go to see that car. You know, when they do, they're often not there wanting to tell people the story of their car. They're there to show off that they own the car and usually win some award so they can feel good about themselves. Whereas when a museum takes a car out to run it and operate it and say, have it at a Concorde Elegance, our museum staff members stand by the car and explain to people what they're looking at and why it's there and why it's significant. The Corvette Museum the Henry Ford Museum, most museums that I've worked with oftentimes check the do not judge box on our cars because that's not what we're there for. We're not there to win the prize. We're there to educate people and show them something unique and significant. And the private collectors aren't there to do that oftentimes. So, yeah, there are some that are. But I have to disagree with statements like that because – I honestly feel that it is the exact opposite, that a car that's locked away in a private collection is lost to history. It's just locked away where one person and their friends can see it. And in a museum, especially one that's open most of the year, the general public can walk in. Other than the Smithsonian, yes, you usually have to pay an admission price, but you can go see that car. If you say, I want to see that car and it's going to cost me $12, you can go see it. But if you say, man, I want to see that, you know, I want to see that national race car. Well, you have to figure out who the owner is, how to get a hold of them, make friends with them, be friends with them for five years before they think that you should be able to see the car. So, you know, it's really my question here is what is the true travesty? In in my opinion, it's the private collection. And I guess I've got my gloves off here also. And since if I, you know, I believe in the go big or go home, you want a little bit, you know, Derek kind of threw some abstract ones out there. But take um, our favorite retired late night talk show host. When he takes his cars out and shows them, it's he does it right and history can be explained and it's not his ego. 
unless he's got it out or he decided to drive it to work that day, you never get a seat. His tank cars or his Duesenberg chassis or his Duesenbergs or his McLarens or whatever else is in his collection, even to the point that photography is prohibited. Um, I had a friend recently tour said person's collection and he posted three or four fo- three or four photos. And I said, how the heck did you get photo permission? They were all of the make that this guy was a fan of and they were all posted to that makes page. But he said, they gave me permission to take those four photographs. And while this personality is great and loves cars and everybody knows he does, and, you know, he does a lot of education behind the cars and he utilizes his collection and auctions to see his collection and that to benefit a lot of charities and that, it's still a very small handful of people that can afford to win those auctions or know the right people to go to or the collection. You know, if he if he was to have a museum that was open to the public, it would probably as, be as well attended. Which is better, to have the Peterson where a lot of the cars are static or be this collector who has TV shows and allows you to see the cars that he feels you should see that day. Which is better, which is worse. And if you go further than that with the Peterson, and now other museums are echoing it, even my former uh, employer has taken a note from that book, and they offer kind of behind-the-scenes tours, or in the Peterson's case, the vault tour, and take you down and see the cars that are on display. It costs a little bit more, but they, you know, those are cars that you can still see like Derek says for a a couple of dollars here or a couple of dollars there you have the opportunity to see them you know if you had 25 bucks and you showed up at said hangar and believe it or not the hangars in that complex that this comedian that I'm talking about has a lot of those hangars are owned by other celebrities with their car collections that you don't even know about show up at 25 bucks, they're going to laugh at you and tell you to go away. You need to know somebody to get into Hangar 1, and then you need to know somebody else to get into Hangar 2, and then you need to know somebody else to get into Hangar 3, and so on. So I totally agree with Derek that for the benefit of the public, museums are better than private collections to educate, to show, to display. And I think they are slowly coming around to the operation in use. But I think that's also a byproduct of car, the car culture in itself. Is For years, cars were restored to perfection, but they didn't have to run. You know, cars that could win some of the major concourse didn't have to run. Now Pebble Beach has their tour. The reason they have their tour is some of the cars at Pebble years ago would barely run but now the the tours there so you have to do this drive the day before the concours to prove the car operates and if there's a tie the car that did the um, drive wins and i actually have a personal friend that had a packard on display and it came down to the drive and his car was fresh out of restoration 
and it had a problem on loading off the trailer. He was registered to do the drive. He was unable to do the drive, and he lost best in class because he didn't do the drive. He tied points-wise car for car, but he didn't do the drive since his car was on non-operational. He got second instead of first. The persona of, or this thought process, I guess, of driving your car as a collector is becoming more and more prominent, and the museums are realizing, and I think it's what I said earlier, cars are art, and art is meant to be used for what it was designed. You know, a painting is designed to be hung on a wall and displayed. Fine china and crystal is designed to be used at dinners and for place settings and not just exclusively displayed. I'm saying that in the largest collection of waterford crystal in the world in the Birmingham Museum of Art, a couple miles from me, never used. But maybe they'll have a dinner party one day. But it's beautiful. And cars, they're art, but they're designed to be used. You've got to use them. You might carefully use them, but you need to use them because that's how they were meant to be. They're they they make smells, they make noises, and that's part of the art. And Derek probably knows the story because I think it was um, a firebird in the 60s or something that they wanted the exhaust note of. And they actually flew, the GM designers or engineers flew to Italy and bought a Ferrari V12 and put it in this firebird. And uh, that's the exhaust note they wanted to tune to. So unless you run the car... You don't get that engineering. You know, they spend a lot of money in today's market to have exhaust cutouts so the cars sound better or the cars are quieter. That's something that, as I think we get to more and more electric cars and hybrid cars and dual drive cars and fuel cells, the, that even that exhaust technology will be something that the next generation will want to experience. The only way to experience it is to have really the car run because the recording just isn't the same. Believe me, Derek and I are much more interesting in person and much more lively than we are on a recorded podcast like you hear us every week. Um, yes, and I do think that, no, uh, yes, I, I agree with what John has just said. You know, obviously the interesting thing living in the museum world, but also owning my own cars that are essentially my private collection, although I don't really think of it that way. You know, I've been asked before, like, well, you know, you're so strict on on the museum cars, but you drive your Falcon all the time and you don't really care. You run it around, you do what you got to do and all this. And you know, you say when you have your, you know, 17 and 23, you know, 17 Overland, 23 Peerless up and running that you're going to drive them to and from work and you're just going to use them. Well, why is it different? Why do you have such strict rules on the museum cars? Well, that's my profession. That is that is my job. My job is to protect those artifacts so that they last for the next 100, 200 years. I, I said in a talk a couple of weeks ago, you know, my job is to make sure that those artifacts outlive me. That's my job, is to make sure that the things in the museum outlive me and outlive hopefully multiple generations after me by taking care of them and treating them responsibly. And that's why I don't fire up 
one of our C4 ZR1 Corvettes or uh, one of our you know, racing Corvettes and take it over to the motorsports park and run it at 10 tenths. You know, I don't go out there and flog it and drive it like it's racing again, because when you get to that, you know, edge of what the car is possible to of doing or capable of doing, that's when things can go wrong. You lose traction, you spin out, uh, you, you know, you wind up in a, a the, you know, the gravel or sand trap and tear up the bottom of the car. Um, you, you know, you wind up throwing a rod. Like I said earlier, you wind up blowing a transmission out. That's not caring for the artifact. It's irresponsibly using the artifact for personal excitement and, and personal fun, which is, is not part of a job. You know, it, it'd be like going to your job and, and you know, you have a, a budget that you're supposed to use to, you know, make your department run properly and you go out and waste it on, uh, blow it on steak dinner and alcohol for all your employees. Well, you're going to get in trouble for that because it's not responsible. That's, that is where I have to personally, as a car person, as, as someone who is passionate about automotive history and significant automobiles as artifacts, I have to draw the line between what I own and what I care for in my job. You know, yeah, it's tricky. And if I'm in my old age, if I decide that I want to donate my 17 Overland or my 23 Peerless to a museum, well, guess what? I understand that that car is going to be used a lot less than when I owned it because they're now going to take care of that car as an artifact. So that's that's where I try to explain where I draw the line. And that's why, you know, earlier I mentioned if you blow up an engine in one of these significant cars, yes, it can be repaired, but it's never the same. That's part of my job. Part of my job is to make sure that the artifact that is representing the story is as close to what it was in that story. Not, oh, yeah, you know, and then we ran it as the museum two years ago and we blew the engine up, so we cast a whole new engine and put it in. And, you know, it's not really the real engine. We, we destroyed the real engine, and uh, that's, that's not part of my job. So that's, you know, that is an area where I think any of us that have worked in, you know, John, you know, worked in kind of that conservation, preservation world, you know, that we have to draw that line. Well, I think you got a little bit too complex with your explanation there, and I'll go to, oh, what is it, 2019, and I think I sold the car in 2010, 2012. But I had a Caterham 7, which is effectively a Lotus 7, Lotus twin cam motor. It was a 1978 Series 3 Caterham 7. So it's as close to a Lotus twin cam as you can have, or twin cam 7, without actually having the damn real car. Uh, has all the problems, all the headaches, all the uncomfortableness. It was the same cockpit size, etc. And I drive the heck out of that car. I never polished the aluminum. It had fingerprints all over it. It was polished aluminum, and then I had blue bodywork and green bodywork, depending on the fiberglass. And, you know, the tanu cover was a little bit ripped. And, you know, th there was bugs on the windshield, and there was brake dust on it, and... But that, that was my car. And they go, how can you do that? And you've got the cars in the museum are, you know, you can eat off of them. 
And the difference is, that's my car, and you're getting to see it in a real-world, real-life situation. There's a, that's the way a lot of Lotus 7s were. Uh, they were r- raced and you know, rode hard, put away wet, as the saying goes. That's the way they were when they were in private ownership. But being owned by a museum, they there is a different level of responsibility, and that's they're there to tell a story about that point in history and that car in history. So if we've done a preservation to say when I was at Barber and our Lotus 27 that was raced for one season, put up and never touched again, we did the preservation, didn't make it look brand new or anything, but it was to tell the story of how that car finished that race or that season. And that's how a race car looked in that that day. And it's as authentic as you can get. And you have, there's a level of care, even in use of that car, to make sure it maintains that patina. Or a freshly restored car that's designed, you know, the Lotus 7 the museum had, or has, I, you know, it's been a while since I've been there now, so I assume they still have it. That car had won a, a national championship. And we store, restored the car to probably a little bit better than the way it was at the beginning of that race. But, and then we use it. But we try to maintain that point in time because that's the story. So there's always a, the care is to keep the story and keep the history of everything alive and proper. And if you were to use that car the way I, if you were to use the Museum 7 the way I used my 7, that story would change every time you use the car. That story would change every time you put gas in the car. And that's not what we we're there to do. We're there to tell you a story on that car of a particular point in time or another car or motorcycle on that era uh, of time and not necessarily the way it's used today. You know, there's a lot of nice Ford Falcons in museums, but Derek's is one being used as a Ford Falcon would have in 1962-63. The Overlands and that that he has... He's going to use them the way it would have been in the day, which is also a nice way of seeing those cars and not being treated as a museum piece. Uh, Derek and I have a mutual friend that drives a Model T, still drives a Model T to work when the opportunity arises, and he uses it as a daily car. Is it pristine museum condition? You can eat off of it? No. It Last time I saw it, it's chipped up and brush painted, which is probably the way it was in the day anyway. But the interior cracked and, you know, it was a used car. It's what it looks like. But it's a Model T. But he's using it the way, guess what? You would have used a Model T in 1913 or 1914. You drove to work. You drove to the store in it. Uh, he's a very patient fellow. And I can say whatever I want about him because I don't believe he even has the Internet. So... Uh, <laughs> So he's not really a he podcast li- podcast listener. Yep. Yep. No, doesn't no, ha- no, he doesn't. He doesn't have Apple CarPlay in that uh, Model T. That's where the owners come in. They can tell the stories, especially those that use the car daily. You know, Derek's perf- you know, perfectly right to sit here and go after the collector who has a car in the garage and never takes it out or takes it out just for that Saturday morning coffee. No, because he's going to he can do that because he uses his collector cars. If he has 3 of them, yeah, they might only make it out 2 or 3 days a week, but they're in his rotation and they're being used. 
it's not like he drives his Lexus Monday through Friday. Saturday morning, I go to coffee, you know, in my Porsche. And then Saturday afternoon, we go grocery shopping in the Lexus again. Now, I can totally see Derek pulling into the local Piggly Wiggly and loading up with, uh, you know, groceries and his Falcon or his Overland and, you know, watching his ice cream melt as somebody talks to him about his car because he'll take the few minutes to talk to you about it. That's just kind of the people we are. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's, you know, and that's one of the reasons I had such an issue with the video that Haggerty put out is just, I guess, you know, we're, we're trying to all promote the same. One of the things we talked about on the show here, we're, we're all trying to promote this hobby, promote this passion, promote the significance that the, the automobile has. And for one faction of the collector car world to start tearing into another by saying something's a travesty and it shouldn't happen is it's a shame. You know, it's, I mean, we've talked about on the show before, you know, we all need to promote that the car hobby is the car hobby. It doesn't matter if you, you know, like antique cars or foreign imports from the eighties, we all love automobiles. We're all doing something to promote the history and the the passion that goes behind the automobile and you know it's like we talked about on one of the shows who knows which show it was or how many of the shows it was you know when you're at a a local car cruise or at a at a local car show don't blow off the 16 year old kid that brought his you know honda civic in to show it off because that's what's going to turn them off to the collector car world. Let's stop belittling each other and, and, you know, start thinking about why it is important to have all of the different sections of this hobby and this interest, be it the museum, you know, car world, the collector car world, the, you know, the private collectors that keep their cars tucked away or the 16-year-old kids that are out running their Honda Civics. This is all, all one big thing, and you know, we're all here for the same purpose. So, I don't know, let's just stop trying to make one look bad over the other. And I you know, now I say that I sound like a hypocrite cuz I'm, you know, earlier saying that the private collector that keeps their car locked away is is the true travesty here. If if you want to call a museum a travesty, Bring your car out and let the public see it more often than you do. But what you said is exactly right. And we'll probably quit complaining and educating on that. But I'm going, okay, I'll put this episode out and it's going to go on uh, social media and friends with the person who did that Hagerty article. And I'm friends with McKeel, who owns Hagerty. <laughs> Maybe we'll get some response. Um, but if there's a collector again, or if there's a, if you're part of that Hagerty team, or if you're part of, of the museum world, and you have a difference of opinion, I think this is something we should visit maybe with a few other museum people or collectors and get their takes and opinions, because I'm just kind of curious if how this shakes out or... Well, if it goes the same way as some of my articles I've I've been involved with in in the past with Hemmings and things like that, it will get very interesting. 
I'm looking forward to it. With that said, maybe this is your favorite episode of the uh, No Driving Gloves podcast. We're now into episode three of our countdown to uh, getting to uh, 100 episodes. Amazon gift cards uh, all the way up to episode 100, $30 a week. Uh, up until that that point, we're going to let all the winners know. Uh, we're drawing names as we go, but we're going to let all the winners know. on ep- And we'll also do a uh, uh, $100 gift card. Everybody's in the hat for that one. Even if you win a thirty, you can you know you can win more than once. We don't care. Your favorite episode of any of our ninety plus episodes we have out there, uh, just share it to your social media. Do it as share as many episodes as you want. Do a hashtag no driving gloves, and we're tracking those. And we're just going to go through and pick out winners every week, and all the way to episode one hundred. And uh, I'll give you a couple of bucks for telling your friends about us. So. Go ahead, share it. Um, I listen to a podcast about podcasting, and they do a nice little jingle I wish I could steal. But, you know, if you like what you hear, go tell somebody. With that, I'm out of here. Good night, everybody. Wait, can I win the gift card? Probably not. Oh, crap. All right, then I'm getting out of here. See you later.